Awesome. Okay. This morning, I have the great privilege of introducing our guest speaker. Okay. He comes all the way from Evandale. And um, you may have met him before. I've known him for 29 years. That's just showing exactly how old I am. (laughs) And he has been a great blessing to my life. Um, He's a man full of wisdom and truth and courage. And you know what? Um, He's a man who loves people. And I always think if someone loves people, you can trust what they say because you know that they have um, your best intentions in their heart. And so um, I'd like to welcome this morning, Pastor Chris. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. And you guys, thank you very much. What awesome worship we had this morning. Give them a hand as they leave the stage. When people say things like that about you, I get worried because I was pretty sure that Ashley was only 24. Um, And uh, so, good, I'm glad to hear it because that means that I'm not as old as that implies, um, which is a great comfort. Um, So, just to to introduce uh, what we're talking about today, we've been uh, preaching uh, over the road in the chapel service uh, about... uh, who God is and who, who he has revealed himself to be to us and what that means for us as, uh, as children of God. And uh, I've translated this uh, to this service as well, except we're a couple of weeks behind. So this morning we finished over there uh, and uh, we might finish here next year sometime because we're about three, three episodes down. Um, so it, we may have to do a, a sort of net, Netflix break um, over Christmas or something, but we'll see what happens next year. But we've got to this stage in the story where God has got his chosen people together. He's formed a nation and he's declared that they're going to be a nation of priests. They're going to be the mediators between the rest of the earth and Almighty God. And uh, this is really good. The, the nation of Israel likes this idea. And uh, they're really happy about the fact he's decided he's going to come and take up permanent residence with the people of Israel. And he, he takes up residence in this thing called the tabernacle. And uh, the idea is, because Yahweh himself is living among them, that they're going to represent the, the pinnacle of God's creation. They are going to be the people that the rest of the nations of earth look to as how to behave uh, as godly people. Because they're living close to God. You can't help but sort of be godly. And, uh, and we'll discover how well that goes um, and uh, how it pans out for them. Because they go into the land God promised them, the tribes unite into this kingdom. And there's one particular king that comes along and he makes Jerusalem the capital. He's Israel's most famous king. Uh, any ideas as to what his name might be? Begins with D, A, Jesus. <laughs> Good answer, but wrong. I remember there's a story about a, a visiting preacher who, who went into the kids' ministry of the church he was visiting and he started to ask them questions. And uh, he said, uh, he said, where I came from, I grew up in the country and uh, 
there were these little furry animals that used to hop around. Does anybody uh, know what they're called? And there's complete silence in the room. And he says, yeah, uh, they, they fluffy tails, long ears, and, and, and nobody says anything. And uh, one little girl up the back slowly raises her hand and uh, she says, I, I know the answer's supposed to be Jesus, but I think they're rabbits. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that one. <laughs> that was free. That's not my notes. That, that's uh, that was a free bad joke. Um, and so David comes along and he's keen on this idea of God living with them. But he's upset about the fact that God lives in a tent. Now, the tent that he lives in is actually quite magnificent. If, was I, yeah, I was supposed to quote a scripture first. Sorry, Morella, I've, I've upset the order of things. Um, so this is it. If we look at the scripture in 1 Chronicles, just back up one. Uh, it says, when David was settled in his palace, he summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the Ark of the Lord's Covenant is out there under this tent. Now, it's not a bad tent as tents go. I mean, if you went to BCF, you'd probably get something a bit more like this, um, <laughs> which is, you know, in comparison, I, I'm, I'm sure that God's not complaining. And the funny thing is that God isn't complaining about the tent he's living in, but David wants to build him a better, a better house. And Yahweh's response to David is not what he expects. Uh, but the promise in what God says to David is actually what propels the story of our relationship with God forward in a big way. And we read this in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 10. And he says, Furthermore, I declare that the Lord will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants one of your sons, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for me, and I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my favour from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time and his throne will be secure forever. So it's okay. I mean, who would like to have that sort of prophecy read over them? Can you just throw me my water bottle from under your chair there, Ashley? No, that one's not open. Yep. Oh. <laughs> not testing my catching ability. And so it's all coming together here. God says, you want to build me a house, David? Nice sentiment, but no. Uh, no, thanks. I'll let your son do that for me. But here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to build you a dynasty a whole lineage of kings and I'll raise up a son after you from one of your own sons. Thanks, David. And so, this is, I mean, this is good news for David. He says, you know, God's going to establish this offspring's kingdom. This offspring is going to build the ultimate temple where Yahweh and humanity can meet together. He's going to have this intimate covenant love relationship with Yahweh himself, so close that he uses the language of father and son to describe the bond between Almighty God and this king. And he's going to set him over his kingdom and it's going to be awesome. So this is great. I mean, we, the, the story is really moving along. We've got the family of Abraham somehow being, bringing blessing to the nations. You have then this whole nation who's called into a vocation of mediating and displaying Yahweh to the nation as a kingdom of priests. And then you have the one true king who's going to uh, come and build the true temple and bring all of these promises to fulfilment. 
And that, I mean, who, that sounds like a pretty good plot. Who's keen on that? I mean, it might even get you reading Chronicles to find out what happens, because who knows, you'd never read Chronicles otherwise. Um, but if you, you sort of think, well, perhaps the key to the story is in this. Perhaps I should read Chronicles with a bit more excitement than last time I did my yearly Bible plan reading. And uh, so you, you start to think, ah, I know who he's talking about, because who builds a temple? Solomon. Solomon. They think, what? One generation, it's already happened. But then Solomon does a few questionable things and uh, things go really downhill from there. Is it Solomon's son? Is it the grandson? And as you read the stories, you start to get sick of uh, um, Chronicles and and you're really a bit upset with uh, the book because guess what? Every single king that turns up is a disappointment. They actually run Israel into the ground. They divide it into two. They fight amongst each other. They, they put up worship uh, places to other gods. They continually sort of sometimes come back a bit and say, yeah, and then they forget about God again. And by the end of it, you're sort of thinking, what's going on? This is, this is useless. And then they get too big for their boots. 500 years down the track, the Babylonians come. And the Israelites think, huh, we got God on our side. God says, no, you haven't. And he said, we, we can take the Babylonians. And so they, they resist the Babylonians. Guess what happens? They get slaughtered. The king, David's son, however many ge- generations removed, gets his eyes poked out and dragged off to Babylon in chains. You sort of think, good story. No. Horrible story. You sort of think, where's the promise in this? I mean, God said these things to David. What about this promise? What's the, what's the whole point of this storyline? Because by the time we get to the end of it, we're, we're depressed. Seriously depressed. You sort of think, oh, let's become a Babylonian. <laughs> Sounds like they're on the winning side. If it was AFL, you'd all be barracking for Collingwood. Ooh, controversial. <laughs> so the story, the, the question we have is, where's the story going now? <laughs> Guess what? The Israelites asked Yahweh exactly the same question. What the stuff is going on? What is happening? And so in this very dark period of Israel's history, he brought this this group of rather eclectic and uh, eccentric individuals who were called prophets. And among the other things they did, they kept alive this promise of a king. You know, the snake crusher talked about in Genesis. And the promise given to Abraham that somehow through this family, even though this family is super, super screwed up, that God was somehow going to bring blessing to all the nations. The prophet Isaiah was probably the most eloquent of these prophets and he has these poems that just brim with eager anticipation and expectation of the coming king and of the promises that that king is bringing with him. So let's just look at one of the most powerful poems that we have in in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 11, starting from verse 1. And... He uses a lot of poetic language. It's a poem. Has anybody ever read poetry? We've talked about this before. <laughs> poetry isn't like a novel. You know, if you've watched The Terminator, there's no poetry in The Terminator. If, is there a book about The Terminator? Does anyone know? Probably, probably pretty boring reading. Uh, death, destruction, mayhem, you know, end of story. Um, but th- this is poetry, so there are lots, lots of imagery because uh, some of it, I mean, it's not real. The first line, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. 
Now, as far as I know, there weren't any stumps in David's family. And so we've got pictorial representation going on here. So I said, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. Sounds good. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. I've woken up like that some days. <laughs> he will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Won't go there. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like the cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Now, this is poetry. I just want to remind you of that again. So he's basically saying the picture is that the lineage of David's line is basically chopped off. All that's left is a stump. The, the, it, it's looking bleak. There's lucky there's nobody wandering around with a, a tin of used motor oil to pour on the stump and make sure it never, never spouts again. Um, but everything's failed. All the sons of David have been shipped off to Babylon and we need to start over. So out of this dead stump there comes this little sprout, new growth. And the poem goes on to expand these metaphors uh, and the sprout all, all of a sudden becomes a person who's endowed and empowered with the spirit of Yahweh himself and suddenly he's going to become this really great king who brings justice to the poor, protects the oppressed, etc., etc., which is incredible. But then, you see, the vision gets even bigger because it's not just he's going to rule in Israel. Creation itself is going to undergo this healing transformation. Now, it's, did I mention it's poetry? It doesn't mean that the food chain is going to be destroyed suddenly and that lions are actually going to eat hay. Um, it, it's, this is a, a metaphoric interpretation of how God's people are going to change the world. And so it's... It's this whole connection, not just with Israel now, but Isaiah is talking about the impact this king is going to have over the whole of creation. And so that, that's, that's pretty neat imagery. Uh, and, and so what happens is that the coming king is not just going to fix Israel, because that's what the Israelites are looking for. They're looking for somebody to fix their nation. But... Isaiah in his poetry says the whole of creation has deep, deep wounds in it. And this king is going to come and fix those wounds. And so there's going to be such an utter transformation that all of creation will be flooded with the knowledge and the presence of Yahweh like the ocean covers the world. And so this, this, this sort of thing in Isaiah is the pinnacle of what's called messianic prophecy. The... the, the the 
prophecy that some, a king is going to come. And, and the Old Testament uh, is great and it ends really well. It ends with a lot of these sort of prophecies that promise great things and the king is coming and everything is going to be fine and it stops. It ends. That's it. Bye-bye. End of Old Testament. And you sort of think, but, but you promised that something's going to happen. And guess what? That's where the next part of the story comes in. And that's, lucky for us, something we call the New Testament. But the thing that, in fact, all the people of the, the Old Testament had to hang on to for 400 years were prophecies like this, which promised that out of, out of the, the, the magnificence that they thought was going to happen in their lifetimes, in, in, their, in, in the way they built their kingdoms, was still going to happen, but God had pared everything down to the fact that there was, there was a, a shoot, just a, a tiny bit of hope left, and that it was going to come to pass. I mean, we struggle with this. We live in a, a cultural moment, I guess, of the, over the last 60 to 80 years, where we have seen growth, constant growth, growth in population, growth in technology, all sorts of things. We've, we've never seen what happens when, you know, even with uh, disease. You know, back 500 years ago, if a disease went through a population, you know, a population of a million could shrink to 100,000 and then slowly build back up again. So there's this, this whole expansion and contraction thing that happened. In the Dark Ages, technology that had existed for hundreds of years was lost because civilization in, in, in uh, Central Europe collapsed. And it took hundreds of years for that, that knowledge to be refound and, and reused and, and for civilization to recover. But we haven't seen that. We've just seen stuff, things happening. You know, iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, X, 11. Um, you know, computers going from massive things that filled buildings to things you can hold in your hand and put in your pocket. We've seen, you know, um, connections with people. I mean, I, I can still remember as a child sitting in our neighbor's house waiting at midnight for our booked call to England to come through so that I could speak to my grandparents for five minutes because it cost 30 bucks. Um, and it was one of those things, hello, grandma, hello, grandma, hello, grandma, hello, hello, hello. And it, the echo was so bad that it was, it was hard to make out a conversation because you had to wait. Hello, grandma, one, two, three, four. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Grandma. <laughs> you had to make sure you knew what you said, otherwise you wasted all this time waiting for a response. And now I can pick up my phone and dial England instantly. Have a mobile phone. I can even FaceTime them. And our, our communication, our connections are so instant, and we're used to this consistent growth. And so when we look at this, this picture of what God is doing, we're puzzled by the fact that it all looked to be going so well. It was expanding, it was growing, and yet because of the the heart of the people, he chopped it all down. He needed someone with a pure heart and he was prepared to go right down to a single bud on a single stump of growth and say, I am putting all my effort into that one thing because it's got to be pure, it's got to be right. And so we've, we've got to wrap our heads around the fact that God isn't, God isn't a consumer. He's not interested in... in, in, in asymptotic growth 
you know, just keep going higher and higher. He's interested in our heart condition. He's interested in the purpose he has for us. And so as I, as I draw to a close, I, I actually want to pray for some people because this whole idea of, of cutting back is foreign to us and yet some of us are in that position. And it might be in your home, it might be at your work, it might be wherever you spend most of your time. But there are people here who feel that they're a shoot in a dead stump. You might be the only person at your work who's a follower of Jesus and you feel that you're the only voice in that wilderness. You may have a family who are not believers. You're the only person in that family who has the voice of Christ and you feel that your voice is so small that it's hard to be heard. You may have a story that you feel you can't tell people because they're dead to what you're hearing. But I believe God has a place. It doesn't matter how bleak your circumstances look. It doesn't matter how hard it is for you to be a believer in in your life. That spark inside of you is something precious to God. Can I get everybody to stand? Can I have George up here? Can I just ask if, if you're here this morning and you've never considered yourself part of God's family, you've never thought that, okay, whatever that is dead in my heart that Jesus can bring back to life, I've never got in touch with that. I've never even believed that that's possible. I want to tell you this morning that a connection with Jesus Christ can bring alive things that you thought were dead. All it takes is an acknowledgement. Um, a bit like Brendan said earlier, that he's the boss. Now, that, that often brings bad connotations into people's minds. You sort of think, well, if you knew my boss, you, my boss, you wouldn't, want to, you wouldn't want to think of God as anything like that. And he's not. He's the best boss you'll ever have. Um, but putting him in charge relieves us of a lot of the burden and the anxiety and the, and the distress of this world because he didn't make us to take that. And so we actually, all we have to do is say, Lord, I, I want to put my burdens onto you. I want to be your children. I want you to be my father, my parent, my God, to take those burdens that I can't take. And we do that through just a simple prayer to invite Jesus into our heart. And that starts us on a journey where we learn to pass our burdens onto him to accept Him, not just as our Saviour, but as our Lord, to give Him control of our life because with surrender to Jesus comes the understanding that His plan for our life is way better than anything we've planned. So can I get everybody just to close their eyes and bow their heads? And if you, That's you this morning. You've never, you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Saviour. Or if you have and you know that you're not living in a place where he actually is your Lord and Saviour. I just want to pray a prayer of invitation with you this morning to invite Christ into your heart or back into your heart to begin that walk with him again. So if that's you, could you just raise your hand so I can see it so I know who I'm praying for and we'll all pray this prayer together. Nice and high so I can see it. 
awesome. You can open your eyes. Let me just pray for you. I just, out of the word of God this morning, I thank you that you know, the line of David came out of the stump of Jesse, David's father. Once a vibrant family, but reduced to just one shoot. I just thank you that here we represent that growth, that, that, that life that comes out of death. And that every single one of us has that potential to flourish and be healthy with you in our spirits. Thank you, Lord.